In this video, I'm going to talk about the minimal facts argument for the resurrection of Jesus. Now, those of you who follow my work know that I have some disagreements with the minimal facts argument, and I've gone into those in some detail in a video that I'm going to link in the show notes down below. It's called Minimal Facts versus Maximal Data Approaches to the Argument for the Resurrection for Apologetics Academy with Jonathan McClatchy. And I go into that in some detail there. In this video, I want to talk about a specific, rather technical uh, epistemic issue, but I want to try to make it really accessible that I think helps to get at the heart of a very central problem and disagreement that I have with the minimal facts approach to arguing for the resurrection. Now, as you may know, the minimal facts approach, and also sometimes Dr. William Lane Craig will say he doesn't do the minimal facts approach. He talks about core facts instead, and he also includes the empty tomb as one of his facts, but it, it is essentially a very similar approach. So this will hit that too, even if I refer to it as minimal facts. A big part of that is a consensus of scholarship. And you'll say, here are these four facts, or these three facts, or these five facts. And we have this broad consensus of a large number of scholars from across the ideological spectrum, from liberal to conservative. They all agree with that these facts, and then that's why we're allowed to just take them as given. So that uh, scholarly consensus is treated as epistemologically important. And in fact, Dr. Gary Habermas has been pretty clear about that. He'll say our method requires this high scholarly consensus, and that's actually supposed to guard you against um, bias and so forth if you have high scholarly consensus. I, I don't agree with that. And as we'll see, uh, you end up actually having to take the consensus and then go against the consensus in a way that doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you try to use this approach. So we'll see that more as we get into this. As the video that I'm going to link below shows, a major point of concern here for me is the appearances of Jesus. So when scholars say, Yes, Jesus appeared to his disciples. It's sort of in some sense. And when you're going for across the ideological spectrum, you're including scholars who are more liberal, scholars who are more conservative, that appearance of agreement and consensus is actually confusing. And it's predicated on a kind of equivocation on the term appearance. Because a number of scholars like Gerd Ludemann, Dale Allison, Bart Ehrman, and so forth, who would be included in a, a consensus that they supposedly grant the appearances. Dr. Craig has explicitly used Ludeman, for example. They don't actually grant the robust appearances of the sort that we have in the Gospels. My approach has been not even in one sense to ask for that much to be granted. Instead, I say, well, let's talk about whether or not this is what the original witnesses claimed. But then I'm going to pack in there what's in the Gospels that they actually claimed. And I'll argue for that, that this is actually what they claimed, that he talked to them for long periods of time, that they were able to touch him, that he ate with them, that he talked to them on repeated occasions and so forth. The broad consensus of scholarship is not going to just grant that, so I'm prepared to argue for it. And it's not prepared to grant, certainly, that he did appear to his disciples in ways that appeared that way. Rather, the idea is that those accounts have been very embellished. 
what is often not recognized is that there are modes of appearance that you could have that would actually be an argument against someone's being risen from the dead. So suppose, for example, that your grandfather died and a couple of days later, you had a kind of experience, like a visionary type of experience of him. He seemed to be right there talking to you, but it was very brief and he just gave you a brief message. All is well. I am happy. Uh, be kind to your mother. And he was only there for maybe a minute or only appeared to be there for maybe a minute and he disappeared. Nobody else saw him. That would actually be an argument that he was dead. I mean, Grandpa never appeared to you that way while he was alive, right? Um, and just kind of popping in, giving a message, and then disappearing before your eyes after a very short time. So that would actually, even if we took it to be veridical, even we, if we took it that you weren't just going crazy, but it was a true vision in some sense, that would be actually evidence that he was dead and that he was speaking to you from beyond the grave. So if those were the kinds of appearances that the disciples had, it's not actually evidence that Jesus was risen from the dead and certainly not evidence that he was physically risen from the dead. So we need to examine what the scholars actually grant. Now I'm going to talk about this epistemic entanglement issue. This is known in the literature, in the theory of knowledge. And this is the reason why having an epistemologist come in here and talk about these issues can be useful. One area where it's known is the area concerning what's called transitivity of, of epistemic support. Epistemic support is not in general transitive. Sometimes it flows through Sometimes it doesn't. So transitivity is like if a relationship holds between A and B and between B and C, then it holds between A and C. Well, sometimes epistemic support isn't transitive like that. A can be evidence for B in the abstract. B can be evidence for C in the abstract, but A isn't automatically evidence for B. So let me give you a classic example of this. This comes out of the philosophical literature. To know this example, you have to know what an Orangeman is. You can Google it. An Orangeman is a member of a particular club in North Ireland that is very staunchly Protestant. Uh, they're Irish in the sense of being from Northern Ireland, but they're uh, Definitely not Roman Catholic. Okay. So suppose you have the proposition Dan is an Orangeman. Now that entails that Dan is an Irishman if we allow Irishmen to include North Ireland and Ireland, Ireland, both in the word Irishman. And in the abstract, Dan is an Irishman raises the probability that Dan is Roman Catholic because the majority of people who are Irishmen are Roman Catholic. But obviously, Dan is an Orangeman is not evidence that Dan is Roman Catholic. In fact, Dan is an Orangeman entails that Dan is not Roman Catholic. You see how that works? So this is a failure of transitivity. And the reason that transitivity fails there is because Dan is an Orangeman is simultaneously relevant to Dan as an Irishman and Dan is Roman Catholic. It's negatively relevant to Dan as Roman Catholic. And its relevance to Dan's Catholicism or non-Catholicism is not captured by that intermediate statement that he's an Irishman. It's the Orangeman is directly negatively relevant to his being Roman Catholic. So that's a failure of also what's called screening, okay? So it would be illicit if someone told you Dan is an Orangeman for you to zoom out, take that out of soft focus and say, oh yeah, he told me that Dan was an Irishman. 
So that's evidence that Dan is Roman Catholic. You're deliberately throwing away evidence. You're cherry picking, you could say. You're ignoring what you're actually told, which was something more specific. So a rule of thumb that epistemologists have developed to try to catch these kinds of things is that if, if we have a con conclusion over here we're interested in, like Dan is Roman Catholic, and we're given evidence, we need to consider that evidence at the most specific level that is pertinent to the conclusion, whether positively or negatively. We can, we're not allowed to pick the level of specificity in such a way as to make it look like it's relevant in a certain way. You have to take the most specific level and then decide how that impacts your conclusion, if it's good or bad for your conclusion. Here's another example. It gets us more into the issue of consensus. So notice that when you do this kind of minimal facts or core facts approach and you just say consensus of scholarship, therefore we're allowed to con uh, conclude or we're allowed to use these premises. What you're doing is you're treating these scholars like they have some special access to the facts that you don't have. More about that in a moment and uh, I don't recommend doing that. These are perceptual matters where the, the scholars are like closer up to the thing to see it. You can research this yourself. But if you're going to treat it that way, this is how you how it goes. And this is what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do. Suppose that I'm considering a person named Jay, and I don't know much about Jay. Maybe he invented something, or I just have some description. And I want to know where Jay lives. For the purposes of this example, let's assume you can't live in two places at once. So living in one town or state or so forth country is incompatible with living with a different one. Okay. And so now let's suppose that I go out and I survey 20 people who know Jay better than I do. And I ask them, where does Jay live? 15 of them say Jay lives in the state of Georgia in the United States. Three of them say Jay lives in the state of Massachusetts. And two of them say Jay lives over in India. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't even live in the United States at all. Now, suppose I want to argue for the proposition that Jay lives in Massachusetts. Okay. Um, so that I, you know, I grab those three. I'm like, okay, they say he lives in Massachusetts. And then maybe I think I have some other evidence outside of this survey that Jay lives in Massachusetts. Fine. But I want to use this survey. Okay, I also want to use the survey I did of these 20 people. So what I do is I say, 18 out of the 20 people agree that Jay lives in the United States. I have a high majority consensus that Jay lives in the United States. So I say, look, that raises the probability that Jay lives in Massachusetts from what it was before, because aside from this, you know, for all you knew, he could have lived anywhere. Now we've got these 18 out of 20 people. They all say he lives in the United States. Well, that narrows it down somewhat. So I've raised the probability that he lives in Massachusetts. Now I'm going to bring in my other evidence that he, he lives in Massachusetts. You know, maybe somebody else I talked to or photographs or records or whatever. And I'm going to try to raise the probability still higher. But I'm insisting I've raised the probability that he lives in Mass Massachusetts by using this survey. What's wrong with that? Well, I'm ignoring the fact that 15 out of the 20 specifically said something that is incompatible 
with his living in Massachusetts. They specifically said he lives in Georgia, not in, in Massachusetts. And we don't even know what their evidence is. You know, maybe the reason they believe that he lives in the United States at all is because he told them he's he's from Atlanta. So we can't assume that they have one set of evidence that he's from the United States and a separate set of evidence that they're using to conclude he's from Georgia. Maybe that's all entangled together. Maybe they heard his accent or something and, and said, oh, that's a Georgia accent, so he must live in Georgia. So maybe their only evidence that he lives in the United States is evidence that he lives in Georgia, for all you know. You're just taking a survey. So what you're doing there that's illicit is you're cherry picking, you're fuzzifying. Instead of describing the evidence at its most specific level, what these 15 people really said, which was that he lives in Georgia, you're describing it as they said he lives in the United States. And then that boosts up, supposedly, the probability that he lives in Massachusetts. What you needed to do was from the beginning say, hmm, that survey didn't turn out the way I wanted it to, well, I'm going to be willing to just go up against those 15. I'm just going to say they're wrong, and you're very welcome to do that. But in that case, you're actually arguing against that survey evidence because the majority of the people surveyed actually said something different and something incompatible with the conclusion that you're eventually drawing. So the survey was not in your favor. And that's, that's just true. You can't treat the survey as being in your favor and then later say, well, now I'm going to admit that the survey wasn't in my favor, but I'm going to hang on to that supposedly boosted probability that he was from Massachusetts that I got from uh, treating the survey as being in my favor and those 15 people. And I'm going to, now I'm going to purge it of, of the statements that uh, he's from Georgia. You can't do that. You can't have it both ways like that. That's not a coherent, legitimate way to take your, take your evidence into account. Another way to see this is suppose that you had the survey described to you that way, that 18 of the 20 said he was from the United States, and then you later learned that 15 of them, they didn't, they didn't just say he was from the United States. They never said just generally, well, he's from somewhere in the United States. They always said specifically he's from Georgia. You'd have to take those back out of the survey. That would reduce that probability. So you should you should take their more specific evidence in its real form from the beginning. Now, I, I hope given my introduction, you can see how this applies to the minimal facts or core facts approach. If you're going to treat these scholars as being somehow in a position of special access, and you're gonna take this survey, just, you know, we want a survey of a high majority of scholars and a consensus, and that's got epistemic force as opposed to just being sociological. And a large number of your scholars that you're taking in there that, quote, acknowledge the appearances actually think that Jesus had appearances to his disciples that were of a kind that are actually of no value or even negative value toward concluding that he was physically raised from the dead. You need to describe what they're saying at that level of specificity. You can't say, I'm agreeing with the consensus of scholarship that there were appearances, yay, the consensus of scholarship raises the probability of the resurrection because appearances raise the probability of the resurrection. The wrong kind of appearances do not raise the probability of the resurrection, and you're ignoring that. 
you're fuzzifying the evidence, then you're going to, now I know what people are going to say. They're going to say, well, I use N.T. Wright. And he says that, uh, he says that Jews uh, understood the resurrection to be bodily. And I'm also going to argue that the disciples wouldn't have concluded that he was physically raised if they hadn't had more robust experiences. So I'm going to argue in this roundabout way that they probably really did have these robust physical experiences. Two points. First, A, that's kind of weak if that's the best you can do. I think you can do better than that. You're trying to go indirect. This still has all the fingerprints on it of trying to avoid saying that the gospel accounts were not embellished. Just man up and argue that the gospel accounts were not embellished. So that's that's A. You're, you're going for an inferior argument at that point. But B, that's changing the subject. That's it's changing the subject from how you tried to use consensus to begin with. That's like your other evidence that Jay is from Massachusetts. I mean, fine, bring in that other evidence if you want to. But back earlier, at an earlier point in your argument, you pretended that the consensus of those 20 people was on your side as far as whether or not Jay was from Massachusetts. And you need to fess up that it really wasn't because 15 of the 20 people said he was from somewhere else somewhere incompatible with being from Massachusetts. And similarly here, if we're using the consensus of scholarship and most of these scholars are, are actually saying appearances in a sense that's, if not strictly incompatible with the physical resurrection, at least are, argues against it. And if that's what they mean by appearances, let's disambiguate that. And let's just say, you know what? The consensus of scholarship is not on the side of the physical resurrection. Just admit that. And then if you want to use your indirect argument, then that's all you got, because you don't have the consensus of scholarship in addition to that. In fact, you have to use that against the consensus of scholarship right from the beginning. Now, I want to talk about a better way, and I'm going to talk about this better way a little bit with the example of Jesus' existence. Occasionally, I will even say, hey, even Bart Ehrman will argue that Jesus existed against the Christ mythers, those who say Jesus never existed. But when I throw that in there, what I increasingly do is I say there is a reason why even Bart Ehrman will acknowledge that Jesus existed. And then what I want to do is I want to get at that underlying reason. I'm not treating Bart Ehrman's opinion as a black box, like Bart Ehrman's an expert. He's closer to this than us non-experts. And so, you know, I'm just like counting noses. No. So I'll say there's a reason. And one of the reasons that I, I understand Ehrman will use, and, and lots of liberal scholars who do think Jesus existed will use, is the Apostle Paul claimed that he met Jesus' brother, James. And he, he refers to him as Jesus' brother. Okay. So, you know, the Apostle Paul existed. He said he met Jesus' brother. He was right close there up to the facts. And so it looks like Jesus existed. That's fine. I mean, there's lots of other evidence that Jesus existed. But notice that that piece of evidence is not entangled in any bad way with anything else. That just stands free and clear. You can use that. That is unequivocally, positively relevant to this, the conclusion Jesus existed. So by getting under the statement of an expert opinion, I can see the nature of the evidence. I can just use that evidence itself. And then I can tell whether I'm running into one of these entanglement issues or something like that by getting underneath it. That's a much healthier way of going about it 
rather than just treating the expert as if he's seeing something, something perceptual or whatever that I don't see, and then just counting those noses. But if you're going to do that, then you need to count their noses as far as what they're actually saying about the appearances. And that's not going to favor the conclusion of the resurrection. So you can't do it that way either. That's an illicit use. And this idea of I'm going to ratchet up to a certain point and say, good, I've got the consensus on my side to this point, And then that's the probability here. And then I'm going to try to take the probability still higher by purging the appearances of these, you know, temporary, brief, floating, non-veridical, or I should say maybe non-physical, you know, maybe veridical or apparitional type appearances is an idea that's actually been suggested to me on social media. And so I'm taking this, that inspired this video in a way, I'm taking this video to explain in more detail why that is epistemically completely illicit. It would allow us to speak of things as evidence for a conclusion that is actually evidence against that conclusion. And that's obviously not something that you can do epistemologically. And it's something we epistemologists have already talked about in order to be more careful. So that's the kind of tool that I want to bring to this discussion. And I hope that uh, I can explain that in a way that people who are interested in this matter can find accessible. That's part of what we're trying to do here on this channel as we're making common sense rigorous.